Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Hal Gregerson, a senior lecturer in leadership and innovation at MIT Sloan School of Management, a former executive director of the MIT Leadership Center, and a co-founder of the Innovators DNA Consulting Group. He is a prolific author and a motivational speaker and has helped leaders around the world to create culture of fearless inquiry and to transform their organizations into innovative powerhouses. The title of his recent book is Questions Are the Answer, a breakthrough approach to your most vexing problems at work and in life. Hal, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Wasim, it's great to be with you and I hope we bridge a few gaps into some great new ideas and maybe even some new questions. Hal, what led you to the research in the field of leadership? <laughs> My mother. <laughs> Um, and my father to some degree. My mother was deeply curious about social behavior. We would be going through supermarkets and she'd be paying attention to people around us and make observations and sometimes intervene in very difficult moments in other people's families to be a support and resource. So I was just, I, I watched over and over my mother being incredibly attuned to social dynamics in the world. And then my father, was a, he was a master musician. He was an exceptional, you know, anything you could fix, he could fix kind of person. Um, but he was also, in today's words, really controlling and to some degree, the words we would use today is emotionally abusive. But um, I learned early on in life that if I asked the right question, I could deflect problems within our household, either for myself or for other people around me. And so early on, I had this sense that questions had a superpower that I didn't realize how important it was until I went to graduate school and literally got my PhD in leadership. I've studied for 30 years all sorts of leaders. Leaders going global, moving from country to country, leaders leading the charge on transformation and change, leaders being innovative and some of the most innovative leaders in the world. And in those 10 or so books and research projects, every single one of them has had an anchor point of inquisitiveness, curiosity, and at the core questioning. So I can't go global unless I ask great questions. I can't lead transformation and change unless I ask great questions. I certainly can't be a disruptive innovator without asking disruptive questions. And so every leadership task we engage in at one stage or another demands of us the better question. This nicely brings us uh, to my next question. Leadership landscape has evolved over the years. Uh, we needed uh, effective leaders. Then the concept evolved uh, to effective global leaders. Then it evolved to effective change leaders. And uh, now it seems it is all about uh, effective digital transformation and innovation leadership. 
Talk us through this evolution of leadership landscape and the common threads that are still there. Well, you may have heard of Mary Parker Follett, who lived actually here in Boston, near where I live, at the turn of the last century, late 1800s, early 1900s. So imagine that scenario. The world is going through an industrial revolution. Mary Parker Follett is a woman operating in a man's working world, and she becomes one of the most respected, what they call management consultants to both business, government, and not-for-profits. She's just exceptional. And at the core of her work was actually the creative act and this dynamic interchange between two or more people where they could engage in what she called constructive conflict. And what she was trying to do was to invite people into a conversation where each would fully hear the other, and because of that, they would be responsive in the moment to the data coming in, and because of that, they would formulate new questions and insights to make their way through one of the most significant transformations this world has encountered, the Industrial Revolution. Now, I and many others would argue that she was literally a century, a hundred years, at least before her time. And the things she saw back then are exactly the things we need right now. I'll never forget one of her stories of walking into a factory here in the Boston area and noticing a sign outside the factory door that said, hands enter here, meaning your hands come through this door, they work on the factory equipment. And this is classic Mary Parker Follett. She went right to the manager of that factory operation and she said, I noticed a sign outside your door, hands enter here. And then she asked the great catalytic question, where do their heads go when they come through that door? And that was a century ago. And so now I'm going to transform us to 2022, which is about literally 100 years after the, some of the most impactful work she had 100 years ago. And in our time, we've had a pandemic, global, once in a lifetime for me, that has put in hyperspeed a digital transformation for every organization on planet Earth that has created the conditions where exponential events and machine learning and deep learning and neural networks are doing things they've never done before and will do things we can't imagine them ever doing at the moment. We are in the middle of exactly what Mary Parker Follett was in the middle in the Industrial Revolution. We are in the midst of some massive change. And you and I have been around enough, Wasim, to know that people say change is getting faster and blah, blah, blah. And I truly believe that it is now today. I used to be skeptical about that. But there's a marvelous book by Azim Azar, um, The Exponential Age. And I'm totally in agreement with him around we are living in that exponential age as part of this digital transformation the things around us are happening so fast and in such magnitude that for many of us, it's hard to even comprehend what's next. Now, given all of that, what do we do? 
I, when I started reading Mary Parker Follett's work, I then read some other phenomenal people um, like Parker Palmer, who has a just an amazing take on leadership. And I landed on a simple definition, Lassie, which is then leaders create a space where inquiry leads to insight. And insight means that we learn something we didn't know before. And then that insight leads to positive impact. And so it's not that we're just asking questions for questioning's sake. That's just being clever and annoying. We're asking questions to get insight relevant to a challenge where we can make an impact. And so that's been my operating definition, be it globalization, transformation, innovation, digitization. How do I create that space? And so you've got about the same time I was starting my research career, Amy Edmondson doing her work that launched around psychological safety. And the, the linkage here is that she and I are operating in a lot of the same domains. And so think of the way I defined leadership. And I'm going to update it now to 2022. Leaders create a psychologically safe space where fearless inquiry leads to insight that produces positive impacts. That's what her work is about as well. And so I don't think Mary Parker Follett a century ago was any different. She was actively, intentionally, systematically creating a space where people who had their worlds and their identities and their lives and their work utterly uprooted by the Industrial Revolution worries, concerns, deep, fundamental, coming to the table with people who saw the world deeply different from them. How do you bring together labor in a situation with the business people and the local governments in order to create a solution that will work? That's what she excelled at. And that's what we're trying to do today, to bridge all of these siloed, you know, politically siloed, be it business or otherwise, groups of people. In the book, uh, Questions Are Answer, a breakthrough approach to your most vexing problems at work and in life. You talk about catalytic questions and you say in the book that these questions dissolve barriers and break down assumptions. Help us to understand the concept of uh, catalytic questions. A catalytic question in the end is the answer. And that's why the book's called Questions Are the Answer. So a simple example is Mark Benioff, for over a decade, worked in Oracle selling large enterprise software that was supposed to, could only be run off of mainframes sitting inside of companies. And he had bumped into small and medium-sized enterprises as a salesperson for over a decade, who basically told him, all kinds of feedback that said, Mark, what you're doing is not helpful. Mark, you're wrong about this. And Mark was sometimes uncomfortable with the feedback, but Mark stopped and he listened. For over a decade, Mark was creating the conditions that cause us to ask different questions. When we are wrong and when we are uncomfortable and when we are reflectively quiet, instead of running from that disquieting feedback, 
If we let it sit and settle, if that happens for us, then new questions emerge. So Mark is wrestling with, on the one hand, selling large enterprise software to large businesses, but his own family had run small and medium-sized enterprises for generations. He's trying to bridge that gap in the spirit of your podcast. And after a decade of getting feedback, he then burns out. He takes a sabbatical for several months, travels the world, trying to still fill that, figure out this gap. And then the question finally comes, what if we sold enterprise-level software like Amazon sells books on the internet? Quote-unquote, cloud computing for big or small businesses, which back then in the 1990s was absolutely insane. No self-respecting large business would put their data in a cloud environment. But Mark came to that question. That question was the fulcrum point. It was catalytic. It challenged a fundamental assumption. You, can't, you can only do enter, large enterprise level software on large enterprise mainframes. And so he challenged that. And he, the challenge had the energy, generated the energy, to do something about the question. And that's what he and they did. And a catalytic question not only reframes a fundamentally false or off assumption, but it generates the energy that's necessary for roughly a five to 10 year run, where if it's, if it's challenging an industry assumption like that so deeply, it takes time and a lot of other people to build the systems to make that work. And staying with the same concept, uh, you say that uh, good questions help us to reframe a problem. Uh, good questions help us to understand a problem from different perspectives. Talk to us about this point. Well, you know, one of the people I interviewed for questions or the answer is Jeff Wilkie who for over a decade was the CEO of Consumer Worldwide at Amazon, and now he's running Rebuild Manufacturing and engaged with a lot of other companies. He's left Amazon, but doing some amazing work trying to build manufacturing capacity around the world. That's his foundation. From MIT, his degree was in manufacturing and supply chain systems. Now, when I asked Jeff, how do you ask the right questions? What conditions caused you to do that? His response was, if you never ask questions and you never experience anything new, your mental model becomes stale. The starting point is having a reasonably good, accurate grasp of what's my mental model of how this industry works. What's my mental model of how my organization succeeds? What about my team? What about myself? What about our family and our community? Fill in the blank. Once we have a, a solid, relatively accurate sense of that mental model, then what Jeff said was, if you don't seek things out, if you, he said, but if you seek out things you don't know, and you have the courage to be wrong, to be ignorant, to have to ask more questions and maybe be embarrassed socially, then I think you'll build a more complete mental model and that model will serve you well over the course of your life. Now at Amazon and at so many of the companies around the world, they are embedding machine learning and deep learning deep within the organizational systems and culture. 
that kind of technology is creating all kinds of connections, correlations, patterns within data that we couldn't see before. And if you talk with Jeff or other people like him, you'll get this sense that they are actively seeking the passive data. They are trying to figure out what's going on here. They are augmenting their inquiry abilities by taking full advantage of technology's insights and correlations. And the whole point of that is for us as human beings to reframe the way we're seeing the world. And so as we move forward and continue to do so in this digital transformation world, if we don't run from the technology, but embrace it as an augmentation of our human capacity, really cool things can happen. And if you, you know, I'm on, in the middle of a project with the chief technology officer at EY around how do you ask AI better questions and how does AI help you ask better questions? And one of the things we're learning is that people who are aware of and deeply engaged with the power of AI and machine learning, deep learning in their work every day, the velocity of their questions is increasing. They're asking more questions. And for some situations, it's causing them to go bigger with more abstract, bigger implication questions. And for others, it's going sharply and detailed, more specific and smaller. So at Zymergen, where they're doing some amazing cutting-edge biotechnology work, they already are asking some big questions, and they're using data from machine learning, deep learning, and experiments that are happening in the thousands per second to get very fine-tuned questions to move their things forward. At Cyber Reason, they're trying to figure out what in the world is this attacker doing in the system? They've got all sorts of data from the machines that's coming in telling the pattern of what might be going on, but they've got to be asking the bigger questions of what is their intent? Is it espionage? What's the bigger deal going on here? And it's only with that symbiotic combination, augmentation of humans with the artificial world that's enabling them to ask the better question before the bad folks do worse things. And uh, you also say that uh, good questions are recursive. Uh, what does it mean? Hmm. Well, that idea came from a note that was sent to me by Ed Catmull, who was one of the co-founders of Pixar, then the president of Pixar and Disney Animation. Um, and Ed once wrote me a note, good questions are recursive. And what does he mean by that? that we, they are worthy of repeating over and over in order to create conversations that move things forward. They're not recursive and repetitive in the sense that we already know the answers and we're just trying to show people how smart we are. So here's an example. At Kian's Corporation in Japan, they are a boring B2B business. They, in one sense, they make sensors for manufacturing environments to make sure the process and product flow are perfect. Now, <clears throat> their recursive question within and with customers is, why are we even doing this? Imagine a culture built around that question. 
why are we even doing this? Why are we even doing this? You can feel the sense of we're going to make things better around here with that question. Well, their sales slash technical people go into a client's environment, watch their manufacturing process. They figure out, well, 95% of what we have at the Keyence Corporation will work here, but we've got to create some new stuff to make it perfect. Then you go back and you run into the classic sales, manufacturing, technical problem, which is people selling something we don't do. But at Keyence, you've got this notion of challenge-driven, problem-led people that like, well, that's interesting. Let's make it just right. Let's modify. Let's create. And as a result, you get these just right systems for these manufacturing environments because everyone's comfortable asking that same and important question. Why are we even doing this? So some of the ones that I've bumped into that are really powerful are starting point. What are you solving for? What are we solving for? Given what we're solving for, what's the grand challenge we deeply care about? Okay. Given that, what would have to be true for this to work out really well? I mean, those are some examples of what I mean by helpful recursive questions that, you know, they're not the answer to everything, but they're certainly worth um, keeping in mind as we navigate the world. We learn leadership skills through various approaches. Um such as through our education, through our professional training, through our work experience. How can we learn to ask better questions? Well, first of all, look at the patterns of action that we're engaged in. And so literally, my first tool in the toolkit for asking better questions is do a question biography. And what I mean by that, it's a question journey. Think of your home growing up. Think of school K-12. Think of university or technical training. Think of your first professional job. Think of your first managerial job. And think of your current professional work. In all of those settings, take a few minutes, write down a sentence or a paragraph about how authority figures responded to your fearless, status quo challenging questions. And the starting point to asking the better question, the catalytic question, is knowing what's my history, what's my relationship with questions, first of all. So, for some people, they had incredibly supportive people. For Orig Gadish, who's the chairman at Bain Consulting, she grew up in Israel. Both of her parents were really supportive of her questions. She had teachers who were excited when she raised her hand instead of told her to put the hand down. And... When she became an early consultant, she asked those tough questions, and she, she still does. For other people, they may have had home environments, like my own father, that shut down questions. They may have had teachers who told them, just shut up. We're going to learn this stuff here today. They may have had bosses during their first job that say, I don't care what your ideas are. Just get the work done. And if we have a history that supports questioning, that influences our ability to be a good questioner. So first, do a question biography, question journey audit. It's easy to do yourself. Talk to somebody who knows you. See what they think about your answers. Second tool in the toolkit is a question audit. 
And what I mean by that is literally take 24 hours and write down on your phone or your tablet or your computer or a piece of paper every question you ask in 24 hours. The questions that come out of your mouth and also the questions that stay in your head but don't ever get asked. Write them down. Write down all the questions people ask you. And then at the end of that 24 hours, and obviously, you can't write down questions when you're talking with a client and you got to listen to them, but try to you know, do the best you can to make a good list of all those questions. Then you step back and you start asking questions about your patterns. What was the starting point of your question? Why, what, when, how, where, who? You know, were there any recursive questions? Were any of those helpful? Were any of those destructive? Um, which, which questions gave the system energy, took it away, and so on? So that question audit helps us realize what we're doing or not doing with our questioning capability. The third piece in the toolkit for me is, again, is that creating the conditions where questions can flourish. It's like planting a plant. You've got to have water and moisture and sun and the seed and the dirt. Maybe not dirt today, but anyway, you get it. The conditions have to be right for a plant to grow. And the conditions for questions to grow is literally being wrong, being surprised. And that could be a hugely positive surprise or a hugely negative one. It could be being challenged and uncomfortable. And the final condition, that notion of being reflectively quiet or quietly reflective. That might mean taking time to just think. That might mean shutting up after you ask a question for five seconds, not one second and fill in the blank. So it's like, okay, you know, how am I doing on those conditions? The final piece, which is super fun and supercharges your individual world or a team or a large group of people. Um, the final piece in that toolkit of asking better catalytic questions is at doing a question burst. And this was 20 years ago. I was helping a organization try to get better gender parity on some issues and we were stuck in the conversation. I was leading the group. We were really stuck, energy low. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, we're stuck. Let's just stop and ask nothing but questions. So we did. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, nothing but questions. This was the days of blackboards. We filled all the blackboards in the room with probably a hundred questions. Energy level in the room went up, reframed the problem, many ideas to move it forward, all in the course of 10 minutes just by asking questions. And what happens is when we're stuck, the uncertainty, the ambiguity of not knowing what to do actually increases the probability that we'll fill the space in between questions with information that's actually counterproductive. So if you and I are at work talking about a challenge and I ask you a question, but we don't know quite what to do here, the anxiety you and I have will fill the space as soon as we ask that question. We will start answering the question. We'll start explaining even why we're asking the question. And all of that information that's before and after questions when we're stuck is actually keeping us from the better question. And so what we're doing with this question burst process that I've now done with probably 50,000 leaders around the world from the top to the bottom of an organization all over the world 
is the following. We'll start individually, Wasim. You could do it right here and now yourself, you know, in one minute. Whatever your challenge is, you just stop 60 seconds, write down all the questions you can. In a minute, you'll probably get five or six questions. That in and of itself has an 85% probability that you will feel better about the issue, which is important because if we feel more positive, we're more likely to get a new idea in question. 85% of the time, you'll slightly reframe it and you'll get at least one new idea to move it forward. That's just you doing it yourself. Now imagine you and I do it together. So you take two minutes, not more, because then I'll be as stuck as you are. I know too much. Take two minutes to explain the challenge. Then we'll both take two to four minutes together to write, to, to generate as many questions as we can about your challenge. No answers, no explanations. We follow those rules, same result. 85% of the time we'll move forward. After, you know, you've shared your challenge for two minutes and then we've for two to four minutes generated questions, then I do it. It's like two minutes, Hal shares with you, here's my challenge. And then at the end of two minutes, we generate questions again. When we finish that, Wasim, you and I both take a moment to find some questions in those questions that resonate deeply enough, call us to action to do something about it. If we do that, when we finish that conversation, you'll go your way, I'll go my way. A week from now, you will be in a conversation and you will hear something that might be relevant to my challenge and you'll let me know. And you'll be more likely to be connected to my challenge because we did a question burst and not brainstorming. Because you're more engaged, you're more committed if you're generating questions about my issue than if you're just giving me answers in a traditional brainstorm. There's real power in that simple one to four minute, nothing but questions moment, trying to get five questions per minute. When you engage with leaders around the world and when you encourage them to create uh, a culture in their organizations that uh, encourages everyone to ask questions and you encourage them to conduct question burst exercises, what are the challenges that you face while encouraging them to do so? And what are the challenges that these leaders and managers face while creating this culture? So it's ba basically at a senior level, how do you make this all work, right? Um, my response would be, it starts with one and the one is me. We change organizations by changing individuals. We learned in our work with, this was 15 years ago with the Innovators DNA research with Clay Christensen and Jeff Dyer. Innovative organizations are led by innovative leaders. Innovative leaders are actually exceptional at asking catalytic questions. That's the starting point of that innovation process. And so if I'm a senior leader and I want the people in my organization 
to actively find and solve challenges that they care about. I've got to model that myself. So the starting point is, what's the challenge that I care most about as the CEO of this company? And do my people know what that challenge is? And do they care about it? That's the starting point. If there's no challenge that we care about, there's no reason to ask a single question, Wasim, right? So the starting point is, are people given enough autonomy and capability to find and solve challenges? And frankly, at most 30% of the organizations on planet Earth do that. You know, for the rest of them, it's just shut up, get to work and do what I tell you, you know, in one form or another. But it's like, okay, let's create this space where we find and solve challenges that matter. And other people know about it. So think of the best organizations you know, business or otherwise, who are really good at what they do. They're pushing the edge. They're moving things forward. They're making things better. I would submit, Wasim, that those leaders are exactly what I'm describing. They show up day after day, finding and solving the toughest challenges. They don't run from them. They run to them. Dr. Lisa Su, who became the CEO of AMD, in 2013, I believe, at one of their lowest stock points ever. Early on in her career, she was given the advice, run towards problems. And at MIT, she learned how to do that even better as a challenge-driven problem-led leader. That's the starting point. Do we have a challenge we care about? Then it becomes an issue of, okay, I'm the CEO. Am I isolated or am I integrated? Meaning, if I'm integrated with the world around me, that means that I, CEO, I am wrong about something, I am uncomfortable about it, and I am reflectively quiet every day I go to work. I once was, I once was in a room talking with Hassel Platner, one of the co-founders of SAP, and I mentioned that Stuart Brand told me that every day he wakes up wondering what he's dead wrong about. And Hassel Plantner, Plantner said, that's me. That's what I do when I wake up. What am I dead wrong about? So the starting point for this is I can't expect others to find and solve challenges, ask fearless questions, and do something about them if I'm not doing it myself. Although our primary focus today is uh, on your book, Questions Are Answer, a breakthrough approach to your most vexing problems at work and in life, I'm also keen to touch upon this other fantastic book that you co-authored, The Innovator's DNA, Mastering the Five Skills of Disruptive Innovators. In this book, you discuss five skills of uh, disruptive innovators, uh, in your view, which skill is perhaps the most important? Uh, how would you compare and uh, rate these skills? Um, two are absolutely essential and three are optional. So here's the deal. Um, Jeff Dyer and I went to Clay Christensen. Um, this would have been around 2006, 2005. And we said, Clay, look, you, you coined the term disruptive innovation. How do leaders in teams actually get the initial ideas that create a disruptive company? And, you know, tall, smart, bright Clay scratched his head and he said, 
I don't know, let's find out, and that's what we did. So we interviewed some of the most innovative people of that time for the original book, um, and we've subsequently, with the, the revision that came out in 2019, interviewed some more people, but originally it was folks like Diane Green who founded VMware, Nicholas Enstrom who founded Skype, Jeff Bezos who founded Amazon. And we asked them, what were you doing when you got the idea that led to these companies that arguably changed an industry? And then you interview 100 of those people and you start realizing, hmm, there are patterns in the data. And if you shadowed these leaders and watched them do your work, you'd see them do five things. They asked questions that challenged the status quo over and over. They observed the world very carefully, like anthropologists, to get new data and observations. They relied on primary data, not secondary data. Their own eyes, not somebody else's. They networked and talked to people who were so different from them, it would force them to think differently about their challenge. They experimented and iterated and rapidly prototyped so easily and frequently that they were getting new data to pivot and move and shift and turn. And all of those first four skills, questioning, observing, networking, experimenting, enabled them to think associationally. In Einstein's words, combinatorial play. Put together things nobody's put together before. And so what we learned was that all five of those skills matter. Um, but the two that are absolutely essential are associational thinking questioning. you got to do those things well to get a great new idea. Now, you might get to that new idea yourself. Scott Cook, who founded Intuit, is off the chart on observing. Mark Benioff at Salesforce, off the chart on networking. Jeff Bezos at Amazon was off the chart on experimenting, prototyping. It's just, you know, his skill. That's what he does. Now, we all have those individual behavioral ways of answering our questions. And what we know from the data is there's no relationship between direct relationship between questions and associational thoughts that are of impact. It's questions and that create the associational thought. I ask and I get out in the world and I watch it. I ask questions while I'm talking to people who aren't like me. I ask questions as we're experimenting and prototyping to build something new and different. And it's the act of inquiry during that very active act of observing, networking, and or experimenting that enables us to think and associationally. So again, if you and I were a team and we, and we were able to study one of the most innovative teams at Microsoft, we did a 360 assessment of their we call these five discovery skills. Each one of that innovative team's member was high on one, highest on one of the five. And a sixth member of the team who was exceptional at developing and bridging the gap and helping them work together, she was just as important as the rest of the group for them to do the work they did. There is no straightforward answer to my next question. You can write books while answering this question. You can write research papers while addressing this question. However, as you have huge experience in this field, I am very keen to ask this question. What is that enables some organizations keep 
innovating and keep producing innovative products and services while there are other organizations that don't survive when market dynamics around them change. So what is in the DNA of some organizations that enables them to keep innovating and keep evolving? Sustainable creativity is impossible without a long-term vision and approach. It's not. I mean, you did, uh, the, the, the demands, the quarterly return demands, the demands of everyday life, the demands of clients and customers and suppliers and employees, all that stuff is so easy to push us into short-term thinking. And the moment that becomes the dominant mode of thinking and we don't have something long-term in our mind and heart is the day we stop building a better world. We might, you know, make a negligently, or not negligently, we might make a slightly better world through some minor efficiency kind of innovation, but it's not going to be a big jump in advance to make a big difference. So if you look at these folks who are really good um, at being sustainably creative, it's a long run world for them. And, and you know, we're in 2022, <laughs> we're, we're, what is it, year three now of, of, a, of a global pandemic and trying to figure out our way through all of that. For many people, it's like, I can't even think three years into the future, let alone five. But if you were to walk into a sustainably innovative organization and you talk with a founder or a senior leader who's doing what you're describing, I'd put money on it. There's at least a 10-year vision, if not 25. I mean 25 years. So I've had the luxury and the honor to do some work with Patagonia. I know that in their materials management area, which is core to the future of Patagonia and to saving our home planet, they engage in conversations, meaningful and substantive, about, okay, what's the world going to be like in 2050? What might it be like? What does that mean now today? What do we do here and now to get ready for that world? That's a different way of looking at the world. If I look at Ed Catmull, whom we mentioned earlier about recursive question, he had a recursive question that dominated his world for 25 years. And that was, how on earth can we make a full-length animated film with computers? And it literally took him 25 years to do it. And, and he knew that Sometimes the technology wasn't ready, but they're going to keep soldiering forward because there's a long-term vision. He had the luxury of getting some investment initially with George Lucas, the Star Wars creator, who had a long-term vision as well. And then Steve Jobs, who was willing to engage in a long-term vision also. And without that kind of long-term money, we would not have had Pixar. Literally, it would not be. And so what, what my starting point on this sustainable creativity is, what's the big challenge 
opportunity in the future that you care so much about that you're going to do something about it today. Then you come back to the present and figure out what can be done today to get us one step closer to that important future. You know, Elon Musk is trying to put people on Mars. Arguably a 25-year minimum adventure. I don't think he's going to give up. I don't fully agree with, you know, how he approaches some things, but he does a pretty darn good job of identifying big challenges and marshalling people and resources to figure out how could we make progress on that here and now. And so, you know, to me, that sustainable creativity, it never comes from short-term thinking alone. This nicely brings us to my next uh, question. Uh, how should leadership evolve in the age of uh, working from home? Um, you know, I have to chuckle and laugh and cry all at the same time at that question. <laughs> okay? Because, you know, these last three years for everybody have been years of loss. We have lost a lot of things, ranging from the ability to go to a restaurant whenever we want to, to some of this, myself included, losing close family members um, to tragic illness. And so we just have a huge range of losses that we've all lived through and we're living through. And it's still part of our, you know, what we're facing every day when we wake up. Now, given that, it's important to remember that, frankly, because now we're moving from working at home to this hybrid thing. And... I remember in mid to late 2020, this aha, which was, wow. Early on in my career, I'd studied people hopping from country to country as global leaders. And the research was around their adjustment process. How do you adjust to a new culture? And you adjusted to culture at work, a new role at work. You adjusted to social interaction. How do you talk to these people who speak a different language and think differently? and also non-work stuff. And I've lived probably like you, and I've lived in Finland and England and France and the United Arab Emirates and the United States. And they're very different places, all of them. And I had to learn how to navigate work and social interaction and non-work stuff nonstop. And I had to learn a lot. Well, when I look at the pandemic, it was, it was literally going to a foreign country, wasn't it? Learning how to work through a camera as a teacher. My role as a teacher changed radically. Social interaction is different. Zoom calls versus person to person or covered with a mask is very different than without a mask, talking to somebody. We all had to learn how to wash our hands, even if we were adults and everything else outside of work. And so as we go back into this hybrid world, I think it's important for us to remember that everyone on planet Earth has gone through at least one major cross-cultural transition in the last three years, and they've had enormous losses in that process. Don't forget it when you're coming back. That's the starting point. And if I remember that, it starts that little thing we call empathy, which is a big thing. Then, when we come back into that hybrid place, it's not work first, it's you first. How are you doing, Wasim? 
What's your world like? How are you feeling? How's your family? What's going on? Why are you here? What are you showing up for, man? Ah, okay. Well, what are we about? What are we trying to do? What matters to us? How could we move that forward? Why are we here in this physical place right now? Why is this hybrid? What's the point? What are we getting here that we can't do over Zoom? You know, it's all those sorts of questions asked honestly that can invite the conversation about why are we doing what we're doing? Is there a better way? And if there is, let's do it that way. And so we are confronting a myriad of challenges in this hybrid work environment. And you and I can't hope to navigate our way through a tenth of them in an hour-long conversation. But my hope would be that as we engage in that hybrid world, we come in with a memory, not a memory wipe, with a memory intact, <laughs> which is we've been through hell, we've made it through some difficult things, we're still carrying the scars of that experience and the learning and the excitement of it, the whole bundle, and now we're in an equally uncertain, unknown cross-cultural transition. And if we approach it that way, with questions at the forefront, instead of off the burner kind of thing, but the forefront is deep inquiry, deep listening, deep caring, deep questioning, I am so confident in the human capability, we can figure it out. We can find and solve challenges. This is one of more than, you know, solving the hybrid workplace is kid stuff compared to figuring out climate change. So let's get over it. It's like, let's grow up and keep moving. As we discussed earlier that the landscape of leadership is changing and evolving all the time, are there any tips and suggestions uh, that uh, you would like to share with young listeners and uh, with the, the future leaders? Uh, what skills they should acquire so that they are ready to meet future challenges? You know, it's really fascinating. Um, you've got, this is pre, these are pre-pandemic studies from LinkedIn, World Economic Forum, other sort of data points. What are the skills of the future? They largely drop into two categories, two buckets. One side is technical. Understanding artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, data analytics. Um, you know, I feel that's not my expertise. And I have, during the pandemic, I feel like I've been doing a PhD in that world, trying to get up to speed to it. So there's that part, you know, of what's going on there. And the other set is around questioning, creativity, and problem solving, innovating, that stuff. And so those are the skill sets. It's like go deep on some element of this technological world we are going to always be a part of now and go equally deep on the human skills that at least for the moment are unique. If we can keep asking better and better questions and retain and hold that ability to find and solve problems creatively, we will retain our humanity. But if, if, we, you know, if we continue to devolve 
those things, those higher competencies, higher cognitive abilities, questioning capacity, if we don't watch it, we'll lose it. It's like Google Maps, right? You know, before we had Google Maps, I used to get a paper map, memorize it in my head, and if I got lost in a new community, I at least had some sense of where I was. But today, if I get lost three blocks off the main road for the Google map, and I don't have orienting physical markers of mountains around me, I'm lost. Because I've lost that navigating ability. And so to me, it's like, okay, if I want to have two compasses that can keep me moving through the dust storm of the future, it's like get real grounded in how does technology work? and get real grounded in how do I ask better questions so I can find and solve the challenges in the world we're operating in. This is fantastic. Uh, these are great insights. Can I, can, can, I add one, can I add one quick thing to that? Sure, please go ahead. So, 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 so the, one, the, one, the one quick thing is, given what I just described about Given what I just described about these two key skill sets of technical and creative capacity, it's like, okay, most school systems are set up to not give us either of those skill sets. At best, they might give us the technical skill sets around technology. But what we know from creative, innovative individuals who find and solve the world's biggest challenges, when they were growing up, they often had what I would call project-centric learning. Montessori schools, international baccalaureate schools, you show up, you're not learning math, you're learning how to solve a problem that uses math and history and English and calculus and engineering in order to figure something out. And, and it, some of these people didn't have schools like that, but they had parents and grandparents who would buy them broken down engines, put it in the garage and say, learn how to fix the thing. Project driven learning is the core of creating the next generation of questioners and innovators who will make a difference out there. So part of it's changing our schools, part of it's just changing our after school at home and on the weekend activity. And as much as we possibly can, create that sort of project focus. What do you care about? How could we find and solve that? And you might even toss in a question burst in the process. <laughs> Teach those young people how to ask better questions by doing that really fast burst of two to four minute questions. Maybe they've got a homework problem. One of my granddaughters had a homework problem a few years ago. And I said, let's just sit down and ask nothing but questions about where you're stuck in a gutter moving. It could be that simple. Hal... We have been discussing your book, Questions Are Answer, a breakthrough approach to your most vexing problems at work and in life. Uh, we have also discussed uh, the book that you co-authored, uh, The Innovator's DNA, Mastering the Five Skills of Disruptive Innovators. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in these books. Obviously, there is a lot more in the books is there anything else uh, that, in your view, we should touch upon before we close this discussion? Is there any other point that uh, you would like to add to this discussion? One thing comes to mind. Leadership is never about me. 
It's about other people. The biggest challenge for first-time leaders is learning how to get things done through somebody else. The second challenge of first-time leaders is when you get something done through somebody else, being more excited about their success than you are about your own, or at least as excited. And if I can answer yes to both of those questions, so much of what we write about, so much of what we read and watch about this thing we call leadership becomes intuitive. If our starting point is, I'm showing up today to get something done through you, Wasim, and I'm going to do everything I can to help you do that, and, but I won't do it for you, but I'm going to help you do that, and when you do, I am going to be your biggest cheerleader. If, if I'm approaching my leadership work that way, I will be asking tough questions. I will be demanding accountability. I will be expecting that we're looking at problems that matter and we'll figure out a way. And if we do that, you know, in the way in which we navigate this very uncertain world we're in, we're modeling wherever we are and whatever we're doing. We're modeling some of these skills that will build bridges, that will bridge the gap. You know, if we've got political divides, it's frankly because people have stopped asking questions that cause them to feel uncomfortable and wrong and reflective. Or they've lost the ability to do that. Could be a political divide in politics, but it could also be at work. It could be at home. This stuff transcends all of those domains and it works equally well in all of them. Hal Gregerson, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Well, same thank you. You have, you have asked some really important questions. You've helped me rethink some things and recommit to this work we're all doing to try to um, just make this place a better world we live on. So thank you. Thanks for your work. Thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye.